0: In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Guillermo Rauch about building and deploying serverless applications with Now. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 112. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wadden, and today it's my pleasure to be speaking with Guillermo Rauch. How's it going, Guillermo?
1: Great. Thanks for having me.
0: So uh, for anyone who's not familiar with you, do you mind sort of briefly introducing yourself and talking a little bit about the sorts of things you work on?
1: Sure. Um, so my name is Guillermo Rauch. I'm on Twitter at twitter.com slash Rauch, I started my career uh thanks to open source really. Uh very uh at a very young age I was like hacking with Linux and all this like sort of fun stuff, but my sort of breakthrough moment uh was two things: is starting with open source, contributing to open source, learning from open source and joining online communities of supportive individuals. Like I would be I would hang out all the time in like IRC IRC channels and um all kinds of websites for like programming communities. Uh, that led um, to me becoming very interested in uh, PHP, uh, specifically like CMS and, and forum software that was like sort of turnkey, like PHPBB and WordPress and so on. But then I became really, really interested in this idea of using JavaScript to create very real-time experiences, uh, experiences where the uh, end user had a direct connection with your website or application. So, I started using this framework called MooTools uh, that sort of started around the time that uh, also jQuery got started uh, in the era of Scriptaculos and Prototype.js. Um, that framework was uh, led to a lot of the uh, early ideas and uh, that it made it into frameworks like React today. Uh, and it was uh, a lot of people that were involved in MooTools at the time are now working at Facebook or other uh, awesome. Uh, places where they crafted the JavaScript experiences of the day. Another way in which I was interested in uh, making uh, snappy, like fast interactions was serving the user with the data uh, in real time before they get to request it. So this idea of sort of eliminating the uh, refresh button as a thing that people needed to click. So I created a framework called Socket.io, which made WebSockets a lot more accessible, uh, just because it made it easier to use and also because it made it completely cross-browser, cross-platform, and so on. So, uh, yeah, my, um, my uh, bio is basically working on open source, but also making it a lot more accessible to a lot of people and creating the best developer tools, and that's what uh, our company does today. So I started a company about three years ago called Zeit, that is behind the uh, React framework called Next.js that many have probably heard of. Um, And we built the serverless infrastructure for deploying uh, frameworks like Next.js and Create React App and Vue, but also uh, programming languages like Go and PHP and um, basically anything. So this idea that it's not just about giving the developer the client side tools, but also giving them a platform on top of which they can deploy applications and websites very, very easily uh, and uh, have them scale automatically.
0: Awesome. So the thing I was most excited about talking to you uh, about today is now that you've kind of alluded to this sort of like really interesting deployment platform that uh, you guys have been working on for a while now. And I, I don't even know what you sort of think of it as or how you sort of uh, categorize it or what the elevator pitch for it is. But um, do you mind sort of talking a bit about like what now is what sort of makes it different and sort of what problems you're trying to solve versus a traditional deployment strategy?
1: Yeah, for sure. So uh, many have probably heard of this idea of serverless. So the idea of serverless comes down fundamentally to you never again manage a server or write a server as a piece of code, really. So now it can be best described as a CDN that is also capable of executing code. So bear uh, with me on this. So when you deploy typically to cloud infrastructure, you select a region, you boot up a VM, you put some code inside, and then you're in charge of sort of the uptime of that. Like you have to monitor it and observe it because it can go down. That's kind of the spectrum of servers today. But there's another spectrum of how people have used the cloud ever since the days of Akamai and um, later on Fastly and Cloudflare and so on, which is you leverage cloud infrastructure that is truly kind of like the cloud. Like it's there and you never worry about it. Yeah. So when you put a, file, a static file into a CDN, you don't monitor that static file. You don't worry that it's not going to be reaching every customer on earth. That, uh, it could, that you could get a page in the middle of the night. So there's kind of a different programming model of if you really squint hard here, you sort of realize that CDNs are fundamentally a different way of orchestrating resources. And that's what now as a platform enables. So when you deploy to now, uh, the easiest way to deploy to now is by installing our GitHub app, which is kind of like Circle CI. you install it into a repo and then it deploys that repo. Uh, or you install the uh, command line at, uh, utility called now. Uh, so you can install it with npm i g now. Um, when you deploy, we put your artifacts, uh, we build your artifacts first, and I'm going to get into that later. And, and then we put them into uh, the CDN Edge. But it's not just the static files that we're putting in that CDN Edge, we're also putting code that is capable of executing on demand. So we're chatting about uh, PHP prior to starting the podcast, and this might sound very familiar to people that have used PHP because that's kind of how it works. It's like it's this magical files that look like static files but are capable of doing very awesome dynamic stuff when a request comes in. So now brings back this programming model and this way of using the cloud and actually makes it work for not just PHP but Node.js, TypeScript, uh, all kinds of frameworks like Next.js and Create React App and Vue and Nuxt and so on in a way that you, the developer, you don't do any work to set it up. You don't do any work to configure sort of the builds. You don't, you don't have to log into any cloud provider. And the result is that when you deploy, you get your URL instantly to your deployment that you can sort of share with anyone, your coworkers and so on. And then you can put it into production by aliasing it to a domain. So you get your deployment and you say, hey, now, um, adam.com is pointing to my deployment.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack there, I think. And a, a lot of it, I think is yeah. sometimes I worry that some of this stuff's hard to see from the perspective of someone who's like completely new to, to these ideas once you've been like so deep in it for so long. So I think it might be worth trying to, um, come up with sort of compare it to maybe like the traditional approach that, a lot of my audience would use like PHP developers deploying like full stack PHP frameworks. For sure. Yeah. So typically,
1: a lot of those people are like getting a VPS and they're probably SSHing into it and they're configuring a server like Apache and then they're coming up with some way of synchronizing files to that server and sort of setting it this all out by themselves. In contrast, And then uh, let's leave aside the the fact that you're gonna have to monitor and maintain and upgrade that sort of Apache server and make sure that it doesn't go down and that it's only gonna run in one region of the world where you first put it up, but let's leave that aside for a second. So just from a developer experience standpoint, with now, all that we care about is your source code. Literally the code that powers your customer experiences. So you create a directory, you put your files inside, you run now, and we give you your deployment in a URL that it will scale infinitely and it will only charge you per each sort of hit that you get uh, is completely on demand, it scales automatically. So there's no server in the picture. You never configured Apache, for example. You never SSHed into anything. There is not even an SSH that you could SSH into. Yeah. Um, all we did was we synchronized the files and we run them at the edge. Uh, so it's a tremendous difference. And, and the cool thing about it now is that this is not coming at the expense of lock-in because what we did is we allowed you to say, hey, please use now slash PHP for this. And now PHP is a little module that builds your project, which is completely open source as well. Um, so it's not that we're removing the server by introducing a some sort of like lock-in or a custom API. Um, you kind of get best of both worlds. The no setup experience but also the ability to sort of navigate the entire spectrum of static and dynamic applications with different frameworks and technologies.
0: Yeah, awesome. So under the hood, right, now is powered by like serverless functions, right? So everything is using something like Google Cloud Functions or Azure Functions or AWS Lambda. And if I understand it correctly, you kind of can use all of those with now, depending on what regions you select and stuff and that's sort of meant to be abstracted away from you in a sense where you're not really worried about what how things are working under the hood
1: yeah so a lot of a lot of people are excited about this idea of serverless functions right but it's they've always been kind of hard to approach because you don't really when you write for example like uh, uh, phP. Um, code base, like using Laravel or Symfony or whatever, you don't think of, oh, I'm, I'm going to define a function here. I'm going to deploy my function. You just literally write your PHP files and you start using your framework and you start either returning some JSON or returning some HTML and so on. So you don't want to like have to unlearn all of that in order to leverage the benefits of serverless functions, which are, for example, infinite horizontal scalability, Uh, Your code, you're not paying for your code when the functions are not being invoked. Uh, All the functions run in isolation, so you kind of have a lot of security benefits in there as well. So what now does is at build time, we package your code into these different serverless functions, and we deploy them with the providers on your behalf. So let's say that you're uh, in Hong Kong, where uh, Google Cloud has a region but no one else in the in I, I believe um, AWS certainly doesn't have a region in Hong Kong, but uh, Azure might not also. Uh, someone can um, snopes me on this later. <laughs> so the the key there is that when you run now in Hong Kong, and uh, our uh, Hong Kong region is in preview mode, but it'll be live very soon. We're we're going to deploy your code to Google Cloud Functions without you even noticing. So you never change your code. You just benefited from deploying it to your closest edge with no extra configuration nor supervision and paying the exact same amount of money that you would pay uh, to the uh, original cloud provider with the same scalability benefits. Uh, so it's it's all about this idea that there, you should never opt to lock yourself into one specific provider. But also the, the key question here is, should the developer even have to worry about configuring cloud infrastructure? And that's sort of what we've set out on a mission to uh, prove and uh, commit to, which is the idea that you need to worry most about the code that needs to be executed to serve your customers. You, you're probably not in the business of configuring load balancers, configuring servers, upgrading Apache, when a, or upgrading, for example, you know, when OpenSSL gets breached or there's a vulnerability, upgrading your server so that you get the latest TLS all of that is handled by now automatically. And that's what I was saying that the best way to think about is like a CDN where, you know, you don't worry about configuring TLS. You don't worry about configuring the the servers. And I think this already happened once, right? Like S3, uh, when it came out, like we used to literally create HTTP servers uh, backed by hard drives that had all this like APIs for synchronizing the files and so on. And we had to replicate the with uh, the hard drives with raid but no one does that anymore right like we all say like oh just use you know like a file api so you can think of now as the missing deployment api for the world that kind of makes it so magical uh and yet so correct that you don't think oh like i'd rather go back and you know configure my own servers
0: yeah so the mission is sort of like how can we take the experience that everyone is already accustomed to at this point for serving static files and bring that same experience to deploying dynamic code that needs to run in a server environment.
1: Correct. And there's so many use cases for this, right? So like if you're running an e-commerce website, if you're running a dynamic blog or something where people submit uh, comments or uh, any kind of uh, website or application that serves dynamic data, which arguably is the is all of them um, can fit perfectly into this model. And obviously there's always like some, you know, constraints that the model I- imposes. But one thing that I always remind uh, my friends and customers is some constraints are in there specifically to enable greater scalability, right? So like the the beauty of this model is that like I said you, it's not that we don't let you SSH into the server because we don't have the the um, we haven't gotten around to it yet. It's more that if we, if, we, if we worked on that feature, we would undo a lot of this great other benefits. Yeah. So in, in a lot of cases, the constraints come with tremendous benefits.
0: Yeah. So I think um, that maybe the most interesting thing to get into first, especially for my audience, is that I think the idea of being able to take your sort of server side code and deploy it using like serverless functions in a way where you don't ever have to worry about the server or think about any of that stuff is really exciting. And then you start thinking about it deeper and all of a sudden you have all these questions about how do you do all this stuff that seems so easy and like stuff that's required to do in a server side applications a lot, like talk to a database, send an email, grab something from a cache, stuff like that. Because at least the way I understand it with serverless functions, everything has to sort of be stateless, Right.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So this is kind of what trips people up the most because a lot of uh, frameworks or, or systems do sometimes make the assumption that they, for example, can write to the, to the file system. So an example is we have, uh, funny enough, we have WordPress deployed uh, uh, with now. You can go to it at WordPress 5nowsh Um And the only thing that didn't work out of the box was image uploads because the images were trying to be written to the file system. Uh, and this is why I was saying that like, the constraints are sometimes so wonderful, because if the functions could only execute in one specific machine where one specific hard drive maintains your uploads, it would severely limit the scalability of the system. But if instead you enable one of the multiple WordPress plugins that allows you to upload images to providers like S3 or Google Cloud Storage and so on then now you have all these awesome uh, scalability benefits and even just like things like built-in backups and a lot of things that you kind of never worry, want to worry about with your with your uploads, right? Um, and, and it's also so cheap. So the system didn't let you, in this case, write to the file system. It seemed like it wasn't working, but then you realize, oh, this is how I actually solve this problem. And by applying the correct solution, it's it's likely that you'll never worry about you know that side of the operation again. So an example is like I used to have this way back in the day where like um and sometimes you will see companies have outages because of this. You run out of hard drive space.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like
1: sometimes you go <laughs> to postmortems of different startups and 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 I and I understand like it's not I'm not mocking because I understand that like when you're monitoring servers, you're not just monitoring one thing like the uptime or or like a ping. You have to monitor so many dimensions that it's so um easy for, for us human beings to, to sometimes entirely forget about some certain dimensions of the, of the things that we have to monitor. And one of them is hard drive space, for example. Like you'll hear it countless of times. Oh, everything was working fine until one day our, our database ran, of, ran out of hard drive space. Um, so that's actually, funny enough, is a category of error that you could have if you were writing to a file system. So like if your uploads went to a file system, one day you'll you'll, uh, get paged or your customers will call you that they're getting errors to upload. Um, However, with serverless, sure, initially, uh, the assumption that the framework was making that it could write to the file system was proven incorrect. And that caused a little bit of a readjustment on me. I had to go and research, oh, what is the right plugin to install so that my files can actually use an HTTP API to be uploaded instead of just writing to the file system. But then, I, I, as you could imagine, I do a lot of things. I don't just set up uh, WordPress demos on Now Age. Uh, I'll probably never again in my life have to second guess whether that website is going to work. Um, short of WordPress getting hacked, or, um, <laughs> uh, but actually, funny enough, every time we run Now, we fetch, uh, our WordPress builder fetches the latest version. So when you redeploy it, you automatically upgrade it as well. Um, but, you know, sh- short of very specific scenarios, serverless gives me the confidence that I'll never have to monitor that thing again.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So in the case of like a file upload, that seems like um, pretty straightforward. You're using some sort of tool to like maybe your serverless function is responsible for getting you like an upload signature from S3 Correct. or whatever. And that's all it's really doing, Um, which is a stateless operation. You provide that signature back to the client. The client uploads the stuff to s3 directly which is probably better for for everyone because there's not double the bandwidth happening or, or all this stuff that um yeah so yep. that's a perfect example of a situation where it's like that constraint is sort of like guiding you towards a better solution anyways which is which is really awesome um but in the case of something like a a database like what What are your kind of like go-to services and stuff for some sort of hosted database service if you need to be able to store persistent data and fetch it? You know, you're building an API that you're deploying on now, for example.
1: So in general, you want to have the same mindset of every time I've been doing something locally or making assumptions of a local computer, you'll want to move that into an API. And in general, it's going to be some probably some HTTPS or TCP based API. So the kind of categories of uh, sort of persistence needs that our customers have are everything from a cache. So yeah. in this case, you can use uh, ser- s- services like Redis Labs or Memcache, oh, sorry, Elastic Cache, AWS Elastic Cache, making sure that the connection is encrypted and uh, that the size of the cache satisfies your needs, etc. So that's for the si- situation where, you know that you have a very expensive backend process or very expensive query and you want to cache it to something. Then in terms of the actual application state, the durability of the application state, I kind of like to divide things into SQL and NoSQL. Um, So for this, uh, SQL I think continues to be a legitimately great option. I think uh, MySQL uh, works very, very well with serverless. Uh, There's a few caveats to keep in mind. I think one of them is that um, serverless is actually giving you so much scalability power that in a lot of cases, databases cannot keep up. So one of them is the connection count. So for example, if you have 2,000 uh, or let's or, uh, say hundreds of concurrent API calls and you're opening a MySQL connection for each, and then there's nothing that is closing those connections quickly thereafter, and then every single API call it's sort of, because in the world of serverless, like, you don't know if, if sort of your, uh, the underlying function was running or not, which is what gives you all this awesome benefits. But because you don't know that, it's not like you can say, oh, I have at most 10 connections open to MySQL. Yeah. So as, as a result, uh, you could overwhelm MySQL. But I guess that this is actually, again, like, I, I'm not trying to, like, say that every uh, negative is a positive, but... It kind of is because of a few things. So first of all, um, you're going to find that things like, uh, especially PostgreSQL, for example, sometimes the connection limits are very, very low, like unrealistically low. And then people start scaling their systems or becoming more popular and and they go down. So it's kind of nice that uh, serverless makes you think about this early on. It makes you think about like, oh, will my database be able to handle the connection load that I'm going to get if my service becomes popular or has a lot of traffic. Mm-hmm. So with MySQL, uh, what you do is you, you can actually be fairly okay by just garbage collecting con- connections every once in a while. So there's, there's modules that do this. For for example, Node.js, serverless-mysql does this automatically, where it's a little bit more careful than default about the connection count to your MySQL server. So I would say, in general, you can use any hosted uh, MySQL service Uh, And it's going to work really, really well, like Aurora MySQL by AWS, or uh, we use a scale grid uh, as well for, for example, the the WordPress demo that we did. Uh, And it works tremendously well. And for things that are not meant to have receive lots and lots and lots of traffic, um, you can actually open the connection and close it in the same invocation. And uh, provided the latency between your function and the database server is low, you're going to be really, you're going to be, really really um effective and keep in mind in a lot of cases that because we're merging the cdn together with the code execution you can take advantage of http cache control headers to not be hitting your database all the time if if uh if people here are familiar with php and wordpress you'll know that like sort of the blue screen of death of wordpress is error establishing a database connection Um, so the solution there i think it's not always to just like hammer your database but it's to take advantage of caching. So the beauty of now is that when you deploy to it, you're basically deploying to a CDN. So you, you don't need to like set up CloudFront or CloudFlare in front. So imagine that you're writing a user facing page that you know that is going to get a lot of traffic. You're actually better off saying uh, taking advantage of the CDN cache rather than you know paying uh, for a tremendously expensive. MySQL database instance that is going to manage that kind of load. That's why I was mentioning, you know, like in a lot of cases, people tend to think that they need to scale the database. And in reality, what they need to do is think better about what is the right sort of CDN caching mechanism I have to use. So on the other side of the spectrum with NoSQL, with NoSQL, I would say you tend to have to worry less about load. And a lot of the, um, the, Providers like MongoDB and Cosmos DB and Dynamo, they have really um, awesome scalability uh, benefits built in. In the cases of uh, or Firebase, for example, in a lot of cases, these more modern databases already support connecting over HTTP mm-hmm. um, to make the queries. And so does the new Aurora MySQL uh, offering by Amazon. So when you're when you're connecting over HTTP to issue your queries and you're not doing like stateful transactions and so on you actually never, probably never worry about uh, connections to your database and, or any kind of issue like that. So we're partnering with MongoDB Atlas to soon provide one-click install of, of MongoDB through our UI, which means you'll sign up for Zite uh, now, going to now.sh, you'll click Install Mongo, and we will provision your secrets automatically, will provision the env automatically, and you'll, you'll be able to connect to your MongoDB database from any sort of language that you use. And I, I, I think that's a great solution for a ton of people because a lot of what we do is just shuff, shuffle documents around, right? Like we have an API that receives some body of a document. We save it to the database, kind of uh, in the JSON format that we already received it with some minimal validation. And then we make another API uh, available to expose a series of documents. So. MongoDB and Firebase like are really really good in this space. One thing I I always recommend to people is, it's appealing that serverless allows you to deploy everywhere in the world. In fact, when you use Now, you can literally say Now dash dash regions all, and it's it's actually I recommend everyone run this. So like do npm install Now, uh, npm install dash g Now, then do for example Now init Node.js for example, and then uh, it's going to create a D, uh now we need Node.js. going to create a Node.js example. So cd into it, and then you, if you run now dash regions all, it'll deploy that function to every available edge in our network. And it's super cool to watch because you can the the output of the command is going to show you in real time. Oh, it's going to uh, our regions are coded after uh, airports, so it, it's going to SFO and IAD, and then it's going to Paris. And but you actually have to step back sometimes and wonder like is this an actually good idea <laughs> because if my database if my database is far away from my function then imagine that you're like uh, you, have, you make two database calls one to get the user row from the session identifier so you have a cookie with the session you select user blah blah where session id this and then you want to fetch all their friends for example or you let's do another table you want to fetch um their likes or something like that so you're gonna make two serial sql calls so what happens is if you if your function is running in uh for example our most distant edge sydney to san francisco or mumbai to san francisco we have like the most latency, like 250 milliseconds then you're just waiting for your functions is running in india which sounds awesome but then the database is running in San Francisco so 250 milliseconds to get the user and then 250 milliseconds to get all the likes and then you know routing is never as efficient as photons of light traveling through vacuum so you have all this like routing hops and and problems sometimes in the routing because you know Mumbai kind of optimizes for routing within like for Indian uh, websites and provinces and so on so you end up having issues also in terms of connectivity. So that's why um, a lot of companies are promoting this idea that serverless allows you to run your code everywhere. And that's true, but you have to be smart about it. yeah. Because what's going to make for the best possible experience for the end user is always minimizing the amount of hops and making sure that the hops are very, very quick. Uh, and this is why like, so many of our customers love now for doing things like server rendering because it's all about minimizing the hops. When when you do SPAs and when you do single page applications, what you're doing is you're giving people like JS and CSS, then they load it on their computer, then they make an API call to your API, then they make another API call, and like you're doing all these hops just to render a few items on the screen. So the kind of golden rule of performance is still applies to serverless. You ha- want to minimize hops, uh, between your function and your database and you also want to make those hops very very fast uh, and now kind of puts you in control of that uh, i'll give you another cool example like we're working on this demo using the unsplash api um, to get uh, it's just an awesome api for getting stock images yeah and we realized that uh, it, um, our functions were executing they were recording the unsplash api It was really awesome it worked perfectly um, but then I realized, hey, like it, to me, it felt a little slow. Just like to get a few items of metadata from the Unsplash API, it seemed like it was fast. But I, you know, I'm kind of uh, kind of obsessed about this, right? <laughs> so what I realized is like, oh, the the Unsplash API is running in the East Coast. Uh, I literally did ping um, space source. Unsplash. Com, and the host replied with US East. So it's like, okay. I'm gonna go and edit my now.json file, and I'm gonna say, deploy my code to IAD, which is our uh, region in the uh, East Coast, yep. and I made it this really simple demo three times faster. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was sort of rejoicing because, sure, you know, initially like, I, it, it worked, but it wasn't as fast, and then now it kind of gave me the power to say, hey, actually I need my code to be running here, and I redeployed with one command, and I made the demo three times faster. Yeah, so that's that. kind of what I want people to be mindful of when they think about this new era of serverless is the basic laws of physics are still very important. <laughs>
0: Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is DigitalOcean. So, DigitalOcean is a simple, developer-friendly cloud platform optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. Uh, I've personally been a customer of DigitalOcean for about five years, and I use them to host all of my server-side projects, like my custom course platform, for example, which is built with Laravel. A lot of the guests that I've had on the show in the past are DigitalOcean. Customers as well. Uh, for example, Taylor Otwell, the creator of Laravel, he uses DigitalOcean to host all of his products like Envoyer and Laravel Forge. And Jeffrey Way actually uses DigitalOcean to host LaraCasts as well. Uh, one of DigitalOcean's newest features that I'm personally really excited about is managed databases, uh, which lets you spin up a completely managed database server so you don't have to worry about anything like backups, uh, managing read only replicas, or just general server maintenance. Now, DigitalOcean is already an extremely affordable service. You can spin up a server for as little as $5 a month, uh, but they've been kind enough to offer a free $100 credit to full stack radio listeners. So if you want to give DigitalOcean a spin, head over to do.co slash full stack, all one word, to claim your $100 credit. Uh, thanks so much to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the podcast. Back to the show. I think maybe it'd be worth sort of like reiterating some of that in in another example, because um, I want to make sure that I understand it, uh, what you're explaining and that the audience does too. So I'm going to try and explain back to you what I understand and you tell me what I got wrong if I did get anything wrong. But Basically what you're saying is like the idea is you want, um, you know, just because you can run the the code in the house next door to where the person lives. If that code needs to make five SQL queries to the other side of the world, Correct. It probably makes a lot more sense for that person to be requesting the code from the other side of the world, so that the five SQL queries can happen very close to each other, um, physically, and there's only like one slow request that happens instead of one fast yep. request and five slow requests. It's one slow request yep. from the user to the code. And That's the a five wonderful explanation. Queries. Okay. So with like, you should. Example, uh, Sorry, go ahead.
1: Yeah, so I was saying you sh- we should then slice up the show and cut this part because it was a really awesome explanation.
0: <laughs> so um, you gave an example like about Next.js and server rendering, which I thought was kind of interesting to think about because I, I haven't thought about it in enough detail yet to fully grok it. But I'm thinking in my head, the way that Next works is it lets you basically render like a React app on the server sort of on demand so that you don't get like the static code back and then see like a spinner until you get the first batch right. of data Absolutely. that you need right so then if Absolutely. you're rendering a next app on now uh, is it just like all the endpoints in your kind of web app they go to some like some single function that's running that does the server side rendering for every Route in the no next? so
1: that's a benefit of using Next and in general any framework that is, allows you to slice up your let's call it single page application into a multiple page application because mm-hmm. so the, the premise of of Next for those that are not familiar with it is we wanted to make using React very very simple but also very very scalable yeah so a Next project is simple is simply a pages directory where every JS file that you put inside becomes a URL that is accessible through the web browser and that returns some React server rendered or uh, basically some JSX rendered code. Yeah. So very similar to how PHP works, where you know all your PHP files become entry points. Uh, for security reasons, we decided instead of uh, rendering any JS file, it's only the JS files that are inside a pages directory. Okay. But what's cool is that when you deploy it to our platform, each of these pages become independent serverless functions that are all independently scalable, uh, that all kind of uh, have their own isolation mode. And this makes server rendering extremely fast because what happens is, imagine that you have a, a, your uh, e-commerce item page. So you yep. create pages slash items, item.js. And that page is your most popular page in the system and all the others are not really. So you wouldn't want the code execution of that particular page to sort of load all the assets of all the other pages in the system. So this is kind of why Next.js has become so popular in the React communities. The, insight, the fundamental insight is the same one that applies to the web browser, which is when you load a page, you want to load as little JS as possible, right? Because... Uh, as you know the Google Chrome Devrel team always reminds us we the more js you load, the slower you make uh, that page load yeah so I, I think the they, they always quote um, a figure that is like you know a uh, hundred kilobytes of JavaScript can add one entire second even from a cache one entire second of just evaluation time, mm-hmm. uh, or i think it 's even less it 's probably like even like depending on how old the device is, 10 kilobytes of JavaScript can be one full second Crazy. of just parsing through the code.
0: Yeah, so it's not but even what's like the, is, the time to download the file that you have to worry about. It's the time yeah, to not execute it all also to make the website interactive.
1: Absolutely. And, and WebAssembly does make that better. Um, it's much faster to crunch through a one megabyte of WebAssembly than it is to crunch through one megabyte of JS. But the point stands, which is, you kind of want to take advantage that your URLs already have a granularity to them. So when I go to amazon.com slash product, I'm not going to amazon.com slash settings. Mm -hmm. So that insight that we kind of learned from the web front-end side applies perfectly to serverless because if you package your functions in such a way that you're only putting the code that's necessary for each entry point of your application in there. And now does this automatically for you. So you don't kind of have to worry about all this. But as a result, what happens is your functions execute very fast and they all scale independently. So the the gist is servers only scale by becoming bigger and fatter and fatter. So if you're familiar with containers or um, you know, any any way of packaging server technology, every time you add something, you're contributing to this pile of code that only gets bigger. So there, there's just no technology that will make, one day you wake up and you're like, oh, my container server just became smaller. No, because you're constantly adding code, you're adding new routes. Uh, if you work on APIs, you're constantly pushing out new versions, but you don't want to immediately deprecate the previous versions, right? Yeah. Um so your server only becomes bigger. Whereas with serverless, each page, each entry point, each API call is always going to an independent uh thing. So you kind of never become slow or you're never paying for the weight of things that you're n- not even supporting or not even that popular anymore. So it, it's a really nice technology in in, in the sense that it's not that you're just only getting started and it's fast, like I mentioned with now in it, or like, oh, my first deployment was so fast. But what we're in the business of is making sure that your deployment number 1000 is also fast and it also scales well. And that's yeah. a, a r- surprisingly hard thing to do.
0: Yeah. So, okay. I think this is a really good segue into probably the topic that, like, kind of like, really pushed me to, to bug you about coming on um, the podcast, which is that my understanding reading about now and reading through the documentation is that you guys at Zite sort of are opinionated about the way that you should sort of be structuring your backend projects, even the ones that are kind of like being deployed in this like serverless fashion, where instead of having like kind of like one single entry point into your application that does some like server-side parsing of the URL to determine which code to, to kick it off to correct you sort of want to deploy every sort of endpoint as its own uh, function so your routing is like handled at like the now.jSON configuration level not like in application code
1: yes and and that's a necessary uh, step. In order to take advantage of this granularity model that i described mm-hmm. because you can perfectly do your routing inside one function for example right like you can use for example in node.js you can use express or with symphony they support their own router system uh, it, but what you're doing there is you're fundamentally introducing a bottleneck because instead of being able to load All in access, letting your customers access that function kind of directly. You're making it go through a huge bottleneck. And you're kind of creating this mega function that contains all the possible routes in the future. Again, it's like if what we want in the client side is to have one bundle of code per thing that the user is requesting, why would you want them? The example that I always uh, give with Next that makes it click for people is like, again, if I'm going to uh, buy a product, why am I downloading the terms of service? <laughs> but but <laughs> you would be surprised at how common this is because like there are a lot, ton of frameworks and technologies out there that the router uh, is like you go, you go into the router config and you add slash TOS and then you, point, you import some module with Webpack or whatever. So what you end up doing is like your bundle now contains even the terms of service uh, of your application, like 10 kilobytes of like English text when I'm going to a completely different section. So that's what we encourage people to avoid also on the backend. And, and the easiest way to fall into this trap is that, oh, I'm going to deploy a server to serverless. That's kind of what a lot of people um, can fall in, in, into the trap of, which is, because serverless is, is such a uh, powerful technology, nothing is technically stopping you from, you know, I created a sort of server abstraction and I defined every single right of my system in there and I then packaged it into all one function. Mm-hmm. There's nothing technically stopping you from doing that. But you're, you're not going to fully realize the uh, scalability benefits of, of serverless if you, if you force yourself into that yeah. corner.
0: It's sort of like the wrong mental model of the whole thing. So the way that um, you guys sort of encourage people to work is to you, if you're going to deploy a Node.js API, for example, with now, now, there would be no Express involved or any sort of right. sort of like routing level framework like that or anything. That's sort of handled at the now configuration level, you can almost think of now as sort of like a framework for you in some ways in that sense. Yep.
1: Yeah, I think it's a good description. Uh, one way that uh, it's interesting that you can use Express is, and we have an example of this, is you can, you can create lots of independent entry points, each for your API or your pages, and then you can actually export one Express instance from each and take advantage of Express's middleware and the mm-hmm. API that you already know, but what we would not encourage you to do is to do all your app.get routing, app.post. Uh, you probably want to handle one uh, URL entry point per express instance, or you might want to do um, one and put the delete, get, and post methods of your API. But then you create a separate one, and then you, create the, uh, you handle the different methods for your other API endpoint separately. Uh, and you're actually going to get a sense of this that because when you run now or when you um, install our GitHub uh, integration, you're going to see that as we build your project, we show you that whether we're able to parallelize your build and we show you the outputs of each uh, of this process. So we show you what functions were created. So in an ideal world, as you continue to evolve your project, you're going to see lots of outputs. You're going to see... API slash users, API slash sessions, API slash files. And and yeah. all of them will become independent. And then you see the the weight of each, which is super cool because weight is a great way of understanding how the complexity of your project evolves over time. Uh, so you can kind of see, oh, like, look, this API endpoint is becoming really big. Or like, why does this API endpoint jump so much? Like, did <laughs> I include the wrong node module, for example? Because uh, these are things that happen a lot in the in the node community, like, one day you include a new module and all of a sudden you realize you're I- embedding a lot of extra code that you didn't want. So servers are also helping with this a lot where you don't really um, um, know uh, with servers that your node modules directory might contain everything in the world because no one actually gave you any limits or guidance uh, for servers. Like servers just grow and grow and grow. So in a lot of cases, we've seen people include, you know, uh, Webpack in node modules for production and 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 things kind of can get out of control.
0: So, okay, so that's that gets me to another topic that I think is interesting. Um, Before we get into that, I want to ask kind of one more question about this, this kind of idea of everything sort of being like every route sort of being like its own entry point from a file perspective right like every endpoint is its own file if we're thinking about in node terms as a javascript file sort of for every page um is is it still possible to like share code between all that stuff like what is the right mental model is it like every endpoint is sort of its own microservice or if i have some database querying code in a file i can import that file into every page i want and that all so i I can still think of it as like one sort of monolithic app in a a lot of ways yes and i think
1: that's by the way the key to all this is monoliths have always allowed people to move really fast because all their code lives in one repo in one place Uh, if you change one api the all the uh, all the other uh, files have to uh, abide by the new api and you find out at a compile time instead of when your microservices fail to talk to each other. So monoliths are amazing from a productivity standpoint. But they have the growth problem and the scalability problem that we're talking about, which is like they become this massive bundle of code. Um, but from a code organization perspective, they're freaking awesome. Because like in, in, in the case that you were talking about, you want your, API, your APIs to have common methods and utilities, of course. Uh, we, we do this all the time. And, but when they get built and they, get, and they turn into funct- serverless functions that get deployed to the cloud, then they all will e- each include its dependencies and not all the dependencies of the system. So think of it this way. You might have an API that does something really, really elaborate. Like imagine that you have an API call that resizes a file and then uploads it to some, some other system. So, sure, that uh, project might bring image magic and this and that, and, 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 but n- none of your other APIs are going to do that. So when you run now, you're going to look at your outputs, and you're like, oh, like, look, this API function is definitely bigger than the others, but, but it makes sense. It has, it's doing some other stuff. Um, but the other important part to sort of think about is that you're never deploying these functions independently. So you're always running now for the entirety of your project or you run get or you get push, and then we build the entire project. So this is kind of the magic uh, of this system is that with microservices, you always think about, oh, I'm gonna go and redeploy this one microservice. Yeah. Now almost doesn't let you do that. With now you're saying, I'm deploying my entire project as if it was a monolith. And that has a tremendous like liberating effect of like, it, the entire thing works in cohesion, or the entire thing does not work in cohesion, so there is no sort of middle point.
0: It's sort of like the like the React mental model taken to deployments, where it's like, I here's what I need you to have deployed ultimately at the end of the day. Correct. I do not care how you do that. Please optimize it as much as you can. I don't want to think about the individual pieces, but like this is the source of truth. Now make that reality.
1: Yep. You're rendering your entire project, basically.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So, okay, so with the um the the idea of sort of creating all these separate artifacts that are deployed as like separate serverless functions, how is that happening like from the user's perspective with Now? Does Now sort of have like its own like bundling system built into it that resolves dependencies and figures out how to create the artifacts? Or is that something you have to worry about setting up with some build tool or...
1: This, this is a really good question. So we have uh, a system that we call builders that is very similar to Heroku build packs. So Herop- Heroku build packs were the servers, what now builders are the serverless. Okay. So this, this uh, builders are open source NPM modules actually that'll take your code and package it accordingly. So we built a bunch ourselves that are uh, super useful for most people like now slash node. Uh, supports nodejs functions and typescript it yeah. actually uses Webpack under the hood uh, to bundle all the code with, with its dependencies together if someone if people have used in the audience go yeah. the mental model of functions that I really like to think about is that when you run go build, you get a static binary of your project that is completely self contained and that it only contains the dependencies that the Go code needed, right? Nothing yeah. else. In JavaScript, we've never had this technology before. So the closest approximation to that is web packing everything into one JS file. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly what the now slash node builder does. And we created a little wrapper for that is really, it works really, really well. But the, the key insight here is that when people have been packaging node, They've been including the entirety of node uh, underscore modules, which can even contain like testing uh, dependencies, development dependencies. uh, 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 Things get published to NPM all the time with their tests, with huge readme files. And you don't, you really don't want to package that into production. So you don't want to do it from a security perspective. You don't want to do it from a uh, common sense perspective. And you ultimately don't want to do it because it's going to slow down your functions. Uh, and, and, and that's why all these builders tend to take this constraint into consideration, um, and anyone can write their own builders, and uh, we have lots and lots of builders contributed by the community, um, and w- what's cool about builders is that they can be as low-level or high-level as you want. So, for example, we have a now slash WordPress builder that'll take wp and then embed WordPress into it, like bring in the entire framework at build time. Um, So it's like you can create this super minimalistic, like project layouts, right? Like you're not including wp-config and the entirety of the framework. You're only including wp-config.php and now the JSON. And then you run now and you get WordPress. (laughs) It's pretty awesome.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, that's really exciting. So one thing that that kind of leads us into too that I think is a a really exciting thing about now that i think is not obvious until you see someone point it out is that um because now supports tons of different languages right it supports node php uh, go rust i think even i think it even supports bash which is kind of ridiculous Um, um you can create one monolithic project where every api endpoint that you write or every serverless function that you write can be written in a different language which may or may not be the best thing to do for your project but it's really fascinating that like if you really needed to optimize some operation and you needed to write it in rust you could do all of that in this big sort of like monolithic multi-language project where it's not like a separate service it still feels like one project
1: and there are many interesting applications of that by the way so there's a lot of scenarios where you actually don't even want uh, different language but you want a different build time language so an example is uh, there are a lot of people that want to build their static projects with hugo okay. so they can use they can use a builder that at build time creates and executes and generates your website only in a specific part of your project so you can say this is a specific part of my project i want to build with hugo this is a part of my project i want to use gatsby And this part of my project when I use Node.js functions, so you can have the sort of freedom to combine this and mix and match these technologies. And and like you said, it might not always be the best idea to just randomly start introducing languages into your stack or your company. But what's important here is that what we've noticed over decades of experience in open source communities is languages and frameworks tend to come and go, right? Mm -hmm. Literally Go, I think, kind of, uh, you know, it was a language that was uh, incubated at Google. They invested a lot of uh, amazing resources into it. It has a tremendous uh, standard library, and it's there. And, like, it's becoming more and more popular. So no one could have predicted that, I think. You know, like, oh, there's this language that's going to come out out of nowhere, and it's going to take the world by storm. Yeah. Or even running JS on the server side. So what we've noticed is languages and frameworks do tend to change. What doesn't change is the fundamental primitives, the protocols, and the the programming models. So the interesting, interesting thing about now is the programming model is the exact same one that people had with PHP 20 years ago. And arguably that's, for me in particular, this is kind of my personal opinion, that is the most successful programming model for creating anything on the web, Uh, especially even for native apps, once we start server rendering native apps, which a lot of people are working on, that is the winning model, in my opinion, for how you want to literally respond to user traffic, do some processing, and give them back some dynamic result. Um, And that's never going to change. What's going to change is that, oh, today I need PHP 7, tomorrow I use Laravel, the day after I use Symfony, then I go to Node.js, So now it's sort of giving you this freedom with the builder system to sort of translate all these communities and languages and trends, but we're giving you this sort of no-nonsense model that is going to make sure that your projects always work and scale correctly.
0: Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Cloudinary. So if I had to describe Cloudinary myself, it's basically just the best way to store and serve images that I've ever seen. In the past, I used to use generic storage services like Amazon S3 to store and serve images, uh, but after switching to Cloudinary, I genuinely cannot believe I ever did this stuff any other way. Uh, so here's one example of how Cloudinary has made my life easier. Uh, so you probably know that typically images are the heaviest resource your users have to download when they visit your site right usually way more than your JavaScript or CSS so in the past I would spend a lot of time tweaking settings and tools like image alpha and image optim to try and optimize my image files so they weren't as large Uh, with Cloudinary I can just upload the full resolution file without even really thinking about it and then by just adding a parameter to the image URL that I get back uh, when I go to serve it on my site Cloudinary will automatically optimize that image as best as it can usually resulting in file sizes that are actually lower than what I was seeing when trying to optimize the images by hand. Uh, this is even more useful for like user uploaded images because instead of trying to do some fancy automatic image optimization in a background job on my own server or something, I can just send those images directly to Cloudinary from the browser, uh, request the optimized version back by adding that URL parameter, and bam, I've got an optimized image at a really small file size. Uh, so there's an enormous amount of other cool stuff that you can do through the URL-based API. That's really just scratching the surface, but you can do stuff like request images at different sizes so you can serve smaller images on on mobile devices. So you're not wasting bandwidth. Uh, you can crop images to different dimensions. You can crop images using face detection. So just crop to the faces in an image. Uh, you can automatically add watermarks or text overlays or tons of different effects and stuff like that. It's a seriously impressive service. So Cloudinary has an amazing free plan where you can store 300,000 images and videos. Yeah. Did I mention you can do all this crazy stuff, not just with images, but also with the videos too. Uh, you get 10 gigabytes of storage and 20 gigabytes of monthly bandwidth on this free plan Uh, so if you're not already using them definitely head over to cloudinary.com and check it out it really is one of my absolute favorite services that i use on my own projects thanks a ton to cloudinary for sponsoring this episode back to the show so i got two more questions for you i don't want to take up too 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 much of your time Um, but the first one is what is sort of the local development story like using now as kind of like you know, the central sort of tool that you're using for development, especially if you're doing all this crazy stuff with multiple languages?
1: Uh, Actually, it all is designed to work uh, perfectly on on local host. And and the keyword there is designed because not every builder has yet been fully uh, prepared uh, to to work locally. But we're we're soon introducing this. uh, It's already in the preview mode this now dev subcommand oh. that'll take this builders, uh, which are, like I said, NPM packages and run them locally and give you the exact same experience that you get in the cloud uh, on localhost. And interestingly enough, and we're, we're about to announce this, you get the exact same semantics as well. So the scalability model, if you send a lot of concurrent requests and the shutdown model of the functions, every little detail uh, mimics the model that you would experience in production. So, it's kind of like it's not just running the code, but it's also running what we call the scheduler uh, that um, this all these different providers use in production. And we see it as our mission to actually extract out this details from them that in a lot of cases are not well documented, and we open source them and we make them work on localhost. So that's kind of been a, uh, our mission from the beginning. It's like, hey, like this serverless tech that's being sort of Uh, rediscovered is really cool but really what matters the most is the developer experience so we're uh, extracting out all these details from from different clouds and we're sort of reproducing them on a local environment to sort of give you the best possible like no latency developer experience
0: awesome that's really exciting i'm really looking forward to checking that out so the last question that i have for you which i think will kind of be a good place to sort of uh, close things off on a on a really sort of practical note, and maybe answer some questions for people. Is um, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about has been sort of like I don't want to say not it's not abstract. I think we've been talking about things in very concrete terms, but I think it's always great to come to like a real application example and and talk about some of the stuff that we've been talking about um, so people can sort of relate to it a little more closely. So I thought it'd be interesting is to just kind of briefly talk about the now dashboard itself. Um, Because I think a lot of my audience, especially, could look at the now dashboard and click around in it and they could think in their head like how I would build this as a Rails app or a Laravel app, for example. Um, So I'm curious, first of all, is like the now dashboard sort of built following all the sort of absolutely. ways that you would recommend yeah. building stuff now. So is that deployed on love, like now too with all separate yeah. functions and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's hundreds of functions actually, which is really funny, but uh, it kind of shows you the amazing scale of this system. Every single push that we make to our website goes through the build process that our customers go through. Um, we have some optimizations for taking advantage of our CDN. Mm-hmm. So uh, when you're logged out, if you go go to zeit.co z e i t.co, you're gonna feel that it's pretty damn fast. Uh, every every click, every transition, everything is just always rendered from a cache, yeah. Um, closest to your location automatically. So it, we're routing you to uh, the CDN edge that's closest to you automatically, and then we're probably returning from the cache. Now, when you log in, things change because then we can sort of server render. Your dashboard we can do anything that we need to do to give you the data that you need as fast as possible so um, yeah each of these pages are NetJS pages that are uh, being built into serverless functions automatically Uh, and and it's a it's a it's funny that you mentioned that because we're open sourcing more and more of this dashboard because we realize that this is mostly what most people in the world need is they need an authentication system then they need a dashboard overview of events and projects. Um, and then, uh, you know, they want all of that to be fast and easily deployable. Um, we actually follow the same sort of deployment model that we advocate for, which is we use the GitHub integration. Uh, so every PR that gets merged into master goes out to Zy.co. Um, and it's it's quite, uh, it's, it's, it's a joy to use. And I think this is already a project that has grown quite dramatically. It has, uh, close to a dozen people committing to it. So it puts the stress into our system of the demands of a high-performance team that is constantly pushing out new code, that wants the builds to be really fast. Uh, so it, it's a great uh, experience to build our tool wi- while building this tool for everyone else. So I highly recommend that.
0: Yeah, awesome. So so um, I'm just looking at it now, kind of clicking around. So. Is, what's the backend built in? Is, it, is there multiple languages or is it just like a Node.js backend?
1: Um, the, it's all Next.js for the actual rendering of the pages. Mm-hmm. And we call out to Node uh, APIs uh, occasionally.
0: Okay. Yeah, to do stuff like I, like I was clicking around, for example, if I want to change my name on my profile or something, that makes yep. like a, a That's request That's also yeah. all
1: Node.js uh, APIs
0: And what services are you guys using for this particular app for persistent data storage and stuff like that?
1: Uh, great question. So for uh, this, we use Cosmos DB. Okay. Uh, it's a database by Microsoft that is geo-replicated. Uh, it allows you to sort of click on a map and replicate your data. So we currently replicate it to, I believe, uh, at least um, North America in Europe. Uh, which actually, and this is why we decided to deploy the functions to uh, three different locations because we know that we have the data there and it will make uh, the experience really fast when we're doing dynamic stuff. Um, And then we use services like, uh, we actually use Redis Labs for some stuff. We use uh, Sentry for er error uh, reporting. We use S3 and Google Cloud Storage quite extensively. We use MongoDB Atlas for a few things as well. So actually, we've really taken advantage. We've really eaten our dog food because over time, we've gone through a lot of different cloud providers and services. Like we've been able to, this idea of not being locked in has paid major dividends to us. Like we've been able to try it all and always go with the solution that works best.
0: Yeah, very cool. So one last question about the the services. I think um, this is something that, for anyone who's trying to build like a single page app for the first time is always a, a stressful topic is like authentication. So I was doing a little bit of sort of like network request uh, peaking to, see, to kind of get an idea what you guys are doing and it looks like you're doing like a token authentication sort of approach where you just send a token back um, to the API. What are you doing to sort of like look up that token and figure out the user identity? Is that stuff stored in like Cosmos DB too? Yeah, that's
1: all, that's all Cosmos. Um, we, if I were to do it all over again, I think at the time when we started Auth zero, wasn't as, um, mature, but now it's kind of a no brainer that we, I would totally use Auth zero or something like it.
0: And just Um, offload all authentication entirely. Yeah, because,
1: because they're, they're, uh, going to do a much better job at, for example, we want to add uh, features like touch ID, you know, authentication, and we could use their SDK and give uh, our customers like touch ID based session resumption overnight. So, but, but I think the experience of rolling it out ourselves hasn't been bad specifically because we kind of wanted to push the boundary of passwordless authentication. Um, so, It gave us, um, building it ourselves gave us the flexibility to kind of decide on what the ideal, uh, onboarding experience would be for our customers. And it it actually worked really well and and I'm I'm really happy with it, um, considering.
0: Awesome. Well, I think that'll maybe be a good place to to start wrapping things up because, uh, I've taken up most of your afternoon here, I think. So um, no what Thank is you the so best much. place for, for people to kind of keep up with you and the new things that are going on um, at Zeit? And is there anything else that you kind of wanted to leave the listeners with before we wrap things up?
1: Um, just follow us on Twitter at uh, twitter.com. Zite, t h q, And we have plenty of examples and, and awesome documentation about how to get started uh, if you click on our website. And yeah, don't hesitate to reach out, uh, to us with questions, especially after having listened to the podcast. Um, if you, um, let us know that you listened to it and and you have a follow up question, we'll definitely, uh, um, give you a personalized response
0: so there you have it folks i hope you enjoyed this conversation with guillermo if you're interested in show notes for the podcast they will be at fullstackradio.com slash 112 thanks to DigitalOcean and cloud for sponsoring the podcast this week and we'll see you next time